Welcome to season two of Open Deeply, devoted to exploring the relationships society pushes into the shadows. Kinky love, non-monogamous love, neurodiverse love, and more. Jack Cornfield says to open deeply requires tremendous courage, a warrior spirit, and unconventional love takes just that. So, join us. Together, we have the courage to open deeply. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Lurie. Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm Sunny Megatron, and my co-host is Kate Lurie. Now, this is the very first episode of season two of Open Deeply. And this season, we're diving into love and connections in its many, many forms. And we thought a great place to start would be with a series on consensual non-monogamy with none other than perhaps my favorite guest of all, Kate herself. (laughs) (laughs) You like that? You like that? (laughs) I love that. That makes me feel special. (laughs) Yeah, so, so maybe I should just launch in. Okay, so... You know, you guys have heard my bio before, but um, I'm going to kind of tell you a little bit about me, you know, specifically that will help lead into what we're going to talk about today. So, you know that I'm a non-monogamous specialist and that I'm a trauma specialist, but I started out as a trauma specialist and learning about uh, how couples interrelate, that didn't start really until 2011 when I started my private practice. And as I started learning from all these different globally known couples therapists like Esther Perel, mm-hmm. I noticed how all of their knowledge was very much in one lane. And then all everything that I learned from trauma experts was very much in another lane. And I didn't make much of it at first. But then I realized how those two knowledge streams actually need desperately to converge in order to really help couple, you know, couples or triads or anything. Mm -hmm. And so those two streams of knowledge and their convergence is what my book is. It is a manifestation of that. My book is called Open Deeply, and it's about conscious, compassionate, open relationships. So just to tell you a little bit about my book really quickly, um, you know, as I said, over the years, I've been learning from all the great relationship therapists over the globe, and I've taken all that knowledge and funneled it through a non-monogamous lens, and then I've blended all of that great relationship therapist knowledge with all the knowledge of the great trauma therapists and Once you see how those fields converge, you realize that this has been the missing link all along. So my book does just that. It explains how blending cutting-edge neurobiology, informed grounding skills, somatic tracking, and mindfulness, which is all the field, you know, all the information you get from trauma therapists, and then converging that with effective communication skills will significantly enhance the health of any non-monogamous relationship. And blending those two is really the secret to loving well. Oh, I, you know, the world needs this so desperately. I'm so excited that you're putting it out there. And really, you know, it's for any kind of relationship. Like you said, what, you know, it could be polyamorous. It could be monogamous. Like a lot of this stuff 
it, it's all important to everyone. And even more so when you're in multiple relationships at once and you have those layers, it gets even more complicated. Exactly. Exactly. And right. And so when you're in a non-monogamous relationship, it pokes at your attachment injuries way more than a monogamous relationship does. Mm-hmm. And so we don't think of those as trauma, but they are potentially small T traumas. Yeah. Yeah. Like your dad leaving without a note when you're little or or your parents neglecting you over time. Sometimes it's a drip, drip, drip of trauma rather than some some major instance. Mm-hmm. And all those things get projected into our relationship. So once you start to understand the two fields of relationship therapy and trauma therapy, you can converge them into something that really helps people. But I thought, you know, maybe we should start out just by telling a little bit about your non-monogamous backstory and mine. I know that we did that in episode, I think, uh, two and three, Mm -hmm. but it's a good time to just do a little nutshell quickly, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So for me, I have only been Consensually non-monogamous for the last, what, 12, 13, 14 something years. Basically, this last relationship that I've been in, I'm currently married. This is the only non-monogamous relationship I've been in. I've always wanted to be and had brought it up to to past partners and they wanted nothing to do with it. Oh, does that mean you don't love me? What's wrong with you? Uh." To Mm. me, it just always felt natural. And probably for many reasons, probably some of the modeling I saw with adults growing up, even though they weren't technically polyamorous, they had that very open sort of vibe. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I tell you, going into a relationship like this, especially older, I have my wits, I've made my relationship mistakes, I've been through all that. And going into consensual non-monogamy from the get-go in a brand new relationship with intention, with everything planned out, has been everything to me. Um, So yeah, non-monogamous marriage, very happy. You know, there's my success story. Ta-da, the end. (laughs) That's amazing. And and when did you start out? What year was that? Oh gosh, it was, I was, what, in my late, I'm 50 now, so late 30s, like 38, 37, something like that. Yeah, it was scary. It was really scary at first. But, you know, like I said, I had made my relationship mistakes and I had pretty decent communication skills, even though I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, (laughs) Knock on wood, it turned out okay. You know, I don't know. A little bit of luck, you know, a little bit of skill. Yeah, yeah. And uh, okay. So for me, I've been non-monogamous since 2003, but before that I had an 11 year monogamous relationship Mm -hmm. and um, it's so funny. We always, we always forget that anybody might be tuning into this podcast. Some people might not even know what consensual non-monogamy is and maybe we should just Mm. briefly, I'm not going to give a cookie cutter definition of it, but I'll, I'll just say, you know, uh, it's a situation where you might be seen other people besides one person. Um, and it's consensual. It's all above board. There's no secrets. So we're not talking about infidelity. We're not talking about cheating. Mm-hmm. And we're not talking about polygamy, which mm-hmm. is, you know, potentially being married to more than one person and oftentimes uh, 
anyway, I, I've never had any polygamous clients, nor have I had known somebody who's polygamous. So I'm not even going to go down that rabbit hole because that's not a territory I know. Um, but non-monogamy is an umbrella term. Consensual non-monogamy is an umbrella term. And underneath that umbrella term are a variety of different types of non-monogamous relationships. And you might want to think of it on a continuum, right? Mm-hmm. From... I have a tendency, I don't know how you would couch it. Um, I have a tendency to almost think of it uh, from the standpoint of a risk continuum. Uh, This does not mean that one is better than the other. But if you think about like on the left-hand side of our risk continuum, I'd put the swing lifestyle. Okay. You know, and that is... uh, romantically monogamous but sexually non-monogamous and if you were to gather a whole bunch of swing lifestyle people in a convention you know convention is <laughs> i always joke that it's almost like an accountant's convention if you were to c- compare their rule books it'd be pretty similar <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> So they're attempting to keep love from coming on board. As soon as you have love coming on board, then there's more risk to having some kind of injuries. But poly people would argue that you're also potentially dampening the joy. Right. Right. And so then as you go down the continuum to the right, if you go to the far right, you might have a whole bunch of poly people living in a household and raising children. Right. Mm hmm. And in the middle of this risk continuum, you might have different hybrids, like uh, some a couple that plays together, but sometimes plays separately. So that looks a little bit like swing lifestyle, but then the playing separately may look like they're starting to move towards poly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, and if you're on the far right of the continuum, if you have a lot of emotion, I would say it takes more emotional intelligence the more you go to the right. Definitely. I don't know if you'd agree with that. Yeah, because yeah. it is more, you know, I see, you know, on the on the left-hand side of the continu- continuum, this, the swinger community, like you said, there's a little bit more control of another person's feelings or at least wanting to control, you know, not having feelings or not, you know, it's purely about the physical and the fun. And yeah, the 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 other end of the the continuum is... You are having, you know, full emotional and or, you know, and sexual oftentimes relationships with other people, which, yeah, that does. It's that's it's hard. It's hard. Really. Right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So it's like you can go to that end. And if if the stars align and you've got a lot of emotional intelligence, it can be freaking phenomenal. Mm -hmm. But there's also more profound injuries that can happen on that side too i would i would say right you know and and so it's almost like if you were playing the stock market i know i'm throwing out a lot of metaphors but that's who i am (laughs) (laughs) um you know it's like it's it's like a a a high risk stock where it's like if it's doing well man you could just be doing just it's like the disney princess is out the tweety birds are singing like everything is gold mm-hmm. but when things go wrong it can be it can be painful yeah um 
Whereas in the swing lifestyle, it's like, I don't know, for, for me, I started out going back. I'm, I'm kind of backing up a little bit because I never explained my story. So I once I had my 11-year monogamous relationship, I had a 13-year non-monogamous relationship. And we started out in the swing lifestyle. But at a certain point, uh, it just wasn't deep enough for us. Mm-hmm. And then we started out by... Um, so we are starting to go to the right of the continuum, right? Uh, we started to do a hybrid where sometimes we would play with other couples and then some, we both had partners on the side, right? right? And then as we progressed, pretty soon we both had partners that we were in love with, you know, mm-hmm. and it became very much that we were on the right-hand side of the continuum. And at this point in my life, I might identify as uh, solo poly. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, well, well, see, I'm in a flux state right now. Mm-hmm. I think it depends on what unfolds in my life, because um, I, I very much am about how I blend with another other partners. And right now, frankly, I'm just focused on my career. Right. So, um, yeah. So that's kind of my nutshell. Um. So, so now we're talking about different forms of how to do non-monogamy right you know so it can go from the swing lifestyle which you know again a lot of times we talked about it being romantically monogamous but sexually non-monogamous so that can look like going you know it can look like a group sex situation or a couple going out with another couple i mean usually in the swing lifestyle you're talking about a couple that's been together that's either just partners or maybe they're married and they may be going to swing parties. They might be participating in group sex or they might be going out with other couples or other singles mm-hmm. and having sexual adventures that are more, um, you know, more about sex. I think the folks that are um, not um, that are monogamous, they assume that that means that there's no connection, but a lot of times folks that are in the swing lifestyle have had friends in the lifestyle for decades. Mm -hmm. They might go to Cancun with their friends. Right. You know, it's not like this. In my experience, it's not the seedy thing that a lot of monogamous people think it is. And in fact, I would say that people in the swing lifestyle, a lot of times, the ones that I knew were way more picky than a lot of monogamous people because it's like in that world, are a lot of you have, you have access to all these really amazing people that are charming and they you know how should i put it you really have a lot of choice of amazing people mm. and so i i think that a lot of people actually become more selective the longer they're they're non-monogamous i don't know if you no, I I see that, uh, and you know there there's that stigma that people think, oh, we just you know do whatever with any whoever, um, and really there is a lot of pickiness, and it could be because we have more choice. It could be because we're a little bit more savvy when it comes to you know things regarding safety, or you know that's what there's. It's probably a lot of different layers, but by and large, non-monogamous folks don't really fit the stereotypes that the monogamous people put on us. Yeah, I always joke when I'm at a, you know, a party that's just monogamous people. A lot of times there'll be that person that's like, oh, you work with non-monogamous people? And they'll assume that I'm 
sometimes they'll assume that I'm not sex positive and they'll just jump in telling me the story of some non-monogamous couple and how they were drama and how they were breaking boundaries and this, that, and the other. And I will jokingly say, can I paint a picture for you? And they're like, yeah. And I'll say, imagine that you are knocking on the door to this party. It's, it's a non-monogamous party. And someone opens the door and they're naked and they grab you by the hand. And before you can even think, you know, you're being drawn towards this writhing pyramid of naked bodies mm-hmm. <laughs> and sex fills the room. Is that what you picture when you think about non-monogamy? And I've had people kind of like sheepishly go, uh, yeah, you know, they, they picture this boundaryless right. uh, environment. And, and then I, and then I tell them what it is actually like. But I've had a lot of people be very confused as to what a non-monogamous uh, swing lifestyle event might be like. Anyway, anyway, so that's a little bit about what swingers are like. Is there anything you would add to that? Um, I think you, you, you pretty well got it. I think that the one thing that I notice because I, I can even though I'm I'm ethically non-monogamous, I identify most with the kink community, which right. has differences in consent. And that's not saying swingers are bad. It's just a mm-hmm. different consent style. Their consent style is is more yes until no. Like if I don't like something, I'll tell you no. Where in the mm-hmm. kink lifestyle, it's very much like no until I say yes. Like don't even hug me. Don't even touch me on the shoulder unless I give you permission. So those two things are different, but I think that's just a, a culture style. One's not better than the other. It just suits different people differently. Yes. And you, I, I, it's a good thing when you, if you decide to explore non-monogamy, to start to think about what your consent boundaries are in advance. Because once you step into a party situation, a lot of those parties can be incredibly captivating and you can get caught up and other people have their own boundaries and you can get pulled into a dynamic and all of a sudden catch yourself doing things that maybe you didn't get enough time to think things through, Mm -hmm. you know, and you always want your yes to be a true yes. Right. right? And so to think these things through as much as possible in advance is always a a great thing. That's not to say that people are pushy In my experience within non-monogamy and I've been in all kinds of circles is luckily, you know, I've, well, not luckily. I mean, I think a lot of these communities do look out for you. I mean, not always, it's always good to do your own research, find your own boundaries, but, my personal experience has been that people have always been kind to me Mm -hmm. and I haven't experienced a lot of people trying to violate my boundaries at parties and that sort of thing. And I think things are changing too, just with the times and the culture in general around consent. So even Mm -hmm. some of those, you know, uh, communities that may have been a little lax on consent 15 years ago or 10 years ago, because of the greater culture, things are changing and we're becoming more consent minded. They're following along as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even when I was researching the book, I could see how things had changed. Cause Mm -hmm. like I said, I'm not in the swing lifestyle anymore. I'm, you know, more towards thing, you know, having thinking that's more on the poly side, a little dash of relationship anarchy in there. (laughs) I'm not in the swing lifestyle anymore. But anyway, um, 
And, but, and I also think one way that we're changing is I think, you know, I mentioned the middle ground of that risk continuum. I think a lot of people are moving into that middle ground where they're maybe doing a dash of what may look like the swing lifestyle and then a dash of, you know, playing separately mm-hmm. or having deeper relationships. And I think a lot of the, you could almost at, at a certain point, think of it a, as a binary, you're either in the swing lifestyle or you're poly. And I think that's just like all kinds of binaries. I think. Yeah it's breaking down too, where, you know, partially because of websites or apps like field where Mm -hmm. they don't have chat rooms or a lot of places where people can communicate with each other and therefore communities aren't forming, which Mm -hmm. means norms are not forming, which means that just everything is on there. Yes. Yeah. You know, I find that that's happening with so many different communities. I find it fascinating. And I know that like you had brought up a few times relationship anarchy and I know what that means. But to to be honest with you, when I first heard the term, it took me a while to really wrap my head around like, what is that? I don't know about that. Now I'm like, oh, I'm down with it. Yeah, I'm down with relationship anarchy. But it took a minute. So can you explain that what relationship anarchy is for listeners? Okay. So one thing I should say about me, I'm a therapist. I'm not a sex educator. So Mm -hmm. I don't have like a whole bunch of definitions that are perfectly in my head. I'm more people come into me and I get their vibe and I help them create, you know, or somebody comes in with trauma and I help them heal. You know, I am more like, uh, how should I put it? Um, almost like a benevolent witch in a way. You know what I I mean? You're the emotion whisperer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm, I'm not that person with these perfect definitions. So actually, you might have a better definition of re- relationship anarchy than me. So again, this is going to be a very organic response mm-hmm. where I, I think of relationship anarchy is the, the, the heartbeat behind it is to break down the rigidity of relationships as we think of them. Like, this is my friend and this is my wife. And, you know, these are the definitions of what that means. And, and I'm going to put this amount of love behind this person because they have this rank. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's, it's more, it's more fluid than that. It's allowing relationships to be what they want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you, you might have a new relationship that you uh, give as much respect and time to as an older relationship. And sometimes, you know, I've seen models where they just break all of these labels down. And instead, when you approach one person uh, that you may want to build some kind of relationship with, that you're more thinking about what components you want to have in this relationship. Mm -hmm. Like, does sex need, do do we want to have sex in this relationship right now? And this may change down the road. Do we want to have friendship? You know, how much time do we want to spend? Do we want to go to movies? Like, it's almost like you're selecting from a menu and you're building, you're building uh, a custom made dynamic with this particular person that may flow and change by the day or the hour. Right. And I think the thing that struck me about relationship anarchy, it's, it's the thing that I at first didn't understand and I couldn't wrap my head around. And then once I understood it, I was like, Oh, I I love this. Yes. (laughs) It was that it was there was no 
hierarchical categorization. Those are two words that just don't belong together. Too many syllables. (laughs) Um, No hierarchical categorization. Oh my God, no. Of relationships. So like when we think of societally, how we think of uh, a romantic partner versus your best friend. It's like you, we, many of us have been there where it's like you and your best friend are two peas in a pod and mm-hmm. you spend a lot of time together and you talk on the phone every day. Da, da, da. And the minute they get a romantic partner, your relationship becomes deprioritized and that right. new partner takes center stage because romantic relationships are more important than friendships. And right. relationship anarchy just throws that all out the window. Um, You get to decide, you know, as you said, and it's usually fluid. Maybe right now at this point in your life, you're devoting a little bit more time to this relationship because it warrants it for whatever reason, circumstantially. But Mm -hmm. one isn't inherently more important than the other. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, I really, I dig that. Yeah. And, and again, to our risk continuum, I, I might even argue that relationship anarchy is at the furthest right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that it requires the most emotional intelligence, but it has the opportunity for the greatest rewards. Yeah. But you can see how if you had somebody who uh, didn't have good boundaries, that had a partner that was a hardcore and self-entitled narcissist, and that narcissist said, I want to do relationship anarchy. You can see how that would be a shit show. We, oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, Whereas in the swing lifestyle, that person might not do. They're still going to do damage, but not at the level of what's possible with relationship anarchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's relationship anarchy is it's uh i'm not gonna say extreme but yeah it takes a lot because we're so conditioned societally to believe like you know either by the nature of your relationship that relationship is more important than this one or if you know you display these certain behaviors or you know spend x amount of time with one person more than the other that means that means this that means None of it means anything or none of it means what we we think it means, what society tells us it means. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I see in, you know, on the other side of the spectrum in the in the swing lifestyle, there are a lot of those rules like maybe, oh, yes, you know, there might be a rule you can have full penetrative sex with you know, your swing partner, but you can't French kiss or you can, you know, have vaginal sex, but not anal because anal is something only we do because it's special where, the, you know, the, those meanings of those arbitrary acts just don't exist in yeah. relationship anarchy or they're assigned circumstantially thing by thing and agreed upon. You know, they're not just the societal expectation. Right. So so if we look at that and we hold a couple of things, we may, maybe hold one one thought. Mm-hmm. The first thought is you no one owns another human. Mm-hmm. You don't own them. You you don't get to control their body. Not, none of that. And then maybe on the other hand, hold that, that humans are pretty injured. In a lot of ways. And most humans do not have a whole lot of emotional intelligence. These two things make it tricky to know what is the best relationship Mm -hmm. 
model for you because if you just lean on the first, you know, just the 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 truth that we can't own another human and we can't and we shouldn't control another human. If we just lean on that, then we might think, well, we just need to do relationship anarchy. Mm-hmm. But if you if you're someone that has a lot of PTSD, you know, mm-hmm. and you don't have a, a kind and compassionate partner and you're in a non-monogamous relationship that has very few boundaries and is just like flowing and different from day to day, that could be pretty da- downright dangerous for, for you. Yeah. You know? So, and then on the other side, you know, so, so it, I think the, the more we have healed mm-hmm. and the more we've moved through our trauma and the more we choose partners wisely, the more we can pull off the right side of the risk continuum. Right. Right. I think, too, you know, it's a weird, precarious balance. I see people in the uh, non-monogamous community, let's say they identify as relationship anarchists, Mm -hmm. and they feel that they are somehow superior. You know, maybe they feel like, well, I've worked through my shit and I am a superior. And they kind of look down on people who are swingers or in what they deem. It's funny, relationship anarchy rejects hierarchy, but a lot of times I see people looking from this holier than thou sort of like, I've reached the final level of enlightened relationships, which, you know, if you can't tell by the tone of my voice, that irks me. Um, But, you know, and I think some folks, they probably do use, maybe they use uh, that continuum as sort of a stepping stone. Like they dip their toes in the water in the swing lifestyle. And once they get a little comfortable, maybe they move more towards polyamory, et cetera. And like you had said that you had done in your relationship. But I think for other people, they find a place on that continuum and that's what's comfortable for them. Like, I, I don't think we, it. I don't know, some people have the expectation like, well, you're always supposed to be moving towards, you know, quote, enlightenment. Um, I don't know if that's right for everyone, but you're the professional and this is your area of expertise. So what, what do you have to say about that? <laughs> well, honestly, I mean, I, I feel like you're just as knowledgeable as, as I am on these topics. But anyway, um, you know, I... As, as a therapist, I do not come in with any kind of judgment. Mm-hmm. I am here to help you help any client or anyone that I talk that I'm talking to that wants to hear what I what I have to say. I'm just helping you find the model that works for you at this point in your life. Mm-hmm. And that may shift and change. And there is nothing wrong with being drawn to the swing lifestyle. Right. Um, I think the swing life lifestyle can really serve you well at different points in your life. I think it can serve you well when you're new because it does have more boundaries, Mm -hmm. you know, and you can kind of get your footing. It's kind of like having a little, like for somebody who may end up on the right hand side of the continuum later, it's like kind of having training wheels, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like you can get your bearings and, and it's, it's a simpler model. There's less confusion. Like I said, it's like an accountant's little handbook or something you can you can figure it out mm-hmm. relatively easily. It's a it's a great place for a lot of people to start out. Um, not every, it's not for everybody. Some people from the get go they know that they want love. Mm-hmm. So a good place for them to start is just to to have one other partner maybe. And again, try and keep it simple. 
but they're not going, you know, and it also has to do with whether you're an extrovert or an introvert. Mm -hmm. Like some, I think the swing lifestyle a lot of times is great for extroverts. They love big parties and they love the social aspect of it. They love, you know, a lot of the parties have, you know, themes like today's rainbow day or white day or, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah, yeah. Um, Whereas a more introverted person may be drawn to just dating two people and be in love with two two different people. There's a million different right. factors at play that will determine what you're drawn to. Mm-hmm. And one does not, it does not mean that you are a more evolved person if you're doing relationship anarchy. In fact, I've seen some pretty, uh, you know, I've seen all types drawn to relationship anarchy. I've seen, like I said, like the narcissists that are, or, or, or people that just, I've seen a lot of people that describe themselves as empaths mm-hmm. that also describe themselves as relationship yeah. anarchists. It's, it's and those, that is the last yeah. thing they are. It's those folks. And I'm not saying that this only happens in this community. We can find this across so many different communities. Yes. But you'll find some folks will co-opt the most progressive language or archetype in whatever community that is to draw people to them or to make themselves seem more empathetic and and emotionally intelligent when really maybe they're using it as a cover to cover up their own BS. And it's like, I don't want people to hear this and think like, well, I better stay away from the non-monogamous community because those people are in every single community it's just human nature yeah right exactly Mm -hmm. i mean i i've been a therapist just short of 20 years and definitely i you know we're talking about non-monogamy but i don't see the monogamous community being healthier than the non-monogamous community at all right you know i i think we have realized in this day and age that breaking down uh binaries and becoming more fluid is a step towards being more adaptable and healthier. Mm-hmm. And certainly you could argue that non-monogamous communities are moving towards that. And, mm-hmm. you know, and so this is the part where you might throw up in your mouth, uh, Sonny, because you're not as spiritual as me. I would even argue, like, I, I'm one of those spiritual people that, believe that believes that our separateness is actually an illusion and that we're actually con- connected to a greater whole. And you could almost argue that non-monogamy is progressing to that idea of one love. At its mm. best, and not at its best, right? You know this idea of um, breaking down all kinds of bio- binaries, and and just loving the whole in, in a and being connected to the whole in a way that is not ego driven mm-hmm. and more community driven. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I I can get down with that in a more pragmatic, logical way. But we're really we're saying the same thing, just two different. <laughs> We believe the same stuff, just in two different styles, you know, you know, and, and talking about all this like relationship anarchy and the the spectrum, you know, hierarchy is a, a big talking point, especially amongst the non consensually non monogamous community, you know, and again, it's it's sort of that judgment people that you know, relationship anarchists that have rejected hierarchy. There is no primary partner. Kind of look at people who have hierarchy as it's not as good, basically, if you have hierarchy, which again, mm-hmm. as we've said, different strokes for different folks at different points in their lives. And, you know, don't be so judgy, <laughs> wagging my finger. So let's talk about hierarchy, its relationship to 
um, that need for humans to control? Is there as much, I don't know, stock and importance and hierarchy than we think there is? Or are we using it as a crutch for something else? Like what's going on there? Well, this is what I can say. Maybe I can speak on it from my personal life and in my professional life. I think I'll start with the latter first. You know, I get folks in my private practice and and friends in my personal life that have all kinds of different models. Some people are hierarchical. Some of them are not. What I see with the folks that have hierarchy is as soon as they start to play separately, mm-hmm. what ends up happening is a lot of times what happens is that organically the outside lovers end up being primary in certain ways and the person at home ends up being primary in certain ways. So like a lot of yeah. times the outside lovers are primary when it comes to sex. Ah. And then and then the people at home become primary in terms of paying taxes together, going on vacation yes. together, growing old together, that kind of thing. Yes. That happens on a loop. Even when I kind of give people a heads up and say, you need to really focus on keeping close intellectually, emotionally, and sexually. And then these outside lovers will just be additions in your life. If you don't do that, this is what can happen. And just, it's not necessarily a horrible thing, but for a lot of people, they don't want that. A lot Mm -hmm. of people, they're non-monogamous. They fell in love with each other under a sixth love language, carefree fun, freedom, and adventure. They consider each other adventure buddies. They fell in love with each other partially because of great sex, and they did not sign on board to be Clark Kent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And and so I really try and help people strengthen their sexual connection so that the out so that that kind of uh, division is isn't so heightened. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I, I kind of went down a rabbit hole a little bit. But regardless, it may not be that the outside lovers end up being sexual primary. They could be primary in a lot of different ways. My main point is just that, you know, there are certain primary relationships that both the nesting partner has and the outside lovers. And now if you switch it in the inverse, folks that say, well, we're not going to have a hierarchy, the same thing happens. Yeah. Yeah. Where certain lovers are primary in certain ways and certain lovers are primary in other ways. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad that illusion. you're bringing this up because it's, you know, I hear a lot of, a lot of talk about well, couples privilege. If you are the quote, you know, whether you call it primary partners or nesting partners, you know, whatever, that you inherently have couples privilege. And to that extent, okay, I agree, but I don't think it's as one-sided. And it's exactly what you're bringing up. It's like, you may have couples privilege in the fact that maybe you're the couple that's married, you know, and you have that privilege. You're the couple that has... I don't know, uh, you know, two families to spend the holidays with that know you're together. You know, that's a form of those things, definitely. But to your point, it's nuanced. And there are other sides to the coin. Because me, for instance, being in a nesting relationship with my spouse, Mm -hmm. I don't get as often fun first date spouse that wears the best outfit and buys the flowers and they're, you know, giddy and fun and really on. Right. I rarely get that, you know, I, and I, and when I do get it's, it, it, 
has to be more of a conscious effort. We have to really put in that effort where I get clean the garage and pay the taxes spouse, which isn't right. always fun. And and that, you know, non-nesting partner gets fun first date spouse and the sex and the, you know, we let's go on a Ferris wheel ride and make out and, you know, so yeah, it's complicated. Right. And and I think that's why, you know, I, I told you before we started taping that I, I really like what uh, Megan on Amory podcast talks about that being non-monogamous is, is a practice. It's a, it's a type of spiritual journey, or I know you would use different language, but like making sure that I don't know. That can be really heartbreaking to to watch your partner that's supposed to love you doll up for someone else, but then they they're not doing that for you anymore. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And and I think that if you and, and very many non monogamous people that are are acting in a unconscious reactive way mm-hmm. will just do that with no awareness, not even thinking about how that lands for their partner. Mm-hmm. But I think when you become more conscious and compassionate, then you try and make more of an intention. Now, now, granted, people have kids and a million responsibilities, right. so it's hard. I mm-hmm. get it. But when you're being more conscious and compassionate, you're more likely to go, I, I don't want us to become that. So I'm, I'm going to purposely try and create moments where, where you feel cherished. At the end of the day, that's what's important. Right. Do you feel cherished? It does not have to mean dolling up and going out to to dinner but it it means feeling cherished and you have to ask your partner what would make them feel cherished Mm -hmm. and you know i find that this conversation or along the lines of this conversation comes up a lot uh in the jealousy like don't you get jealous conversation and i think what you're saying right here really hits like how jealousy is handled, what it means, how it's processed and how it's responded to moving forward. So like an example from my life is when I first started non-monogamy and, you know, I got hit with jealousy and I was like, whoa, what's this feel? Oh no, what do I do with this? Oh God. Uh." And I realized, you know, old me may have lashed out at the new partner You know, Mm -hmm. they're prettier than me. They're more this than me. You like them more than me. I would have gone to blame and control Mm -hmm. and and to other people. You know, it's other people's faults. And I realized, you know, through working through this, and this was just a huge breakthrough for me in a lot of ways. I guess it was, maybe it was a stepping stone in my emotional intelligence or a light bulb moment that Mm -hmm. when I was feeling jealous, it wasn't like, oh, now I got to lash out at the other person or control you to keep you from seeing the other person. It shone a spotlight on my own situation, my own, you know, myself and my relationship and showed me what was missing that I didn't realize and what I needed to advocate for. So for me, it really was like, wow, when I see you going out and getting dressed up and being giddy with, you know, your new partner, I'm still happy for you that you're doing that. I'm still happy for your other partner. But I realized like, holy shit, it's been three months since we've had a date night. It's been like, I haven't gotten that. And I need that too. So I need to ask for that, advocate for that. We need to make time for it. And that was that one was like the light bulb of everything. But two, 
it helped it forced us to to see the things we weren't seeing in their true light for what they really were mm-hmm. and to make those things happen so we were happier and it right. was like everything and we could have handled that completely differently and like fallen apart you know yeah 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 and so you added a piece that a lot of times I don't hear added, which is the piece, and I might not quote you perfectly, you you didn't just say it shined a light on my insecurities. Mm-hmm. You added, it also shined a light on what I needed to advocate for. Mm-hmm. Not everybody adds that. A lot of people just say the first part about the insecurities. Mm. Um, you know, I, that's my experience a lot of times. Yeah. And both are so important. And I'd go further to say that when you're in a situation like at a party, for instance, and you see, like, imagine you're at a party and it's your birthday, but you're at somebody else's party with your partner and your partner has uh, someone they're interested in. And mm-hmm. that night they just laugh and giggle with that other person the whole night. Right. Mm-hmm. And then when you leave, you're super upset. Now, if you just stop short and thought about insecurities, you might like blame yourself and say, you know, I'm just jealous or whatever. But if, and I've seen people do that a bazillion times. I've had people go into shame spirals, crying in my office saying, why am I so horrible at Polly? That's super common. Instead, I'd invite someone to go deeper and ask themselves, okay, what is, what is my partner's re- responsibility, if any, and what is my responsibility, at, if any? Mm-hmm. And on on your on your end, on the person's end that's hurt, sometimes to get in touch with that moment and get in touch with it somatically and emotionally. What did I I feel? I felt ignored. I felt disrespected. What did I feel in my body? I felt my heart racing. Um, I felt alone, and I felt tension in my body get in touch with both of those things and then bridge back and see if there's anything in your life that pops up Mm -hmm. oh I remember my my parents always laughed at my siblings jokes Mm -hmm. they always paid attention to her I never got attention in fact one time we were at the gas station they were howling laughing at something she said and they drove off it took them 10 minutes to realize they had left me at the gas station you know so, yeah. so, so that's something that that person needs to work on and maybe therapy, maybe get some EMDR or find some way to, if they can't afford that, find out ways to ground themselves and work through it uh, to help get their nervous system calm again. Now, again, what's the responsibility with, with the partner? Well, it was her freaking birthday. Like, couldn't he have balanced things out or given her a little bit more attention because it was her special day? Like his behavior could have been he could have adapted his behavior as well. Uh-huh. He played a part in that, in the upset of that night as well. Right. Right. And a lot of times I hear that piece left out that it gets put on the hurts person, the hurt person. And it's just their job to work through their insecurities. And it's like, no, it's, it, it runs a lot deeper than that. And it's broader range than that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Just like everything it's layered and nuanced and complex. It's not, necessarily one or the other. Um, And, you know, and sometimes, you know, for me, 
I look at it more as when things like this happen, it shines a light on a need um, that I didn't even know I had. You know, it's hard enough for for us to ask for what we need when we can identify what we need. To me, some of these things help me identify like, holy crap, I had a need and I didn't even realize it. Like I whoop, did looked right over that, you know, and but to your point, yeah, the, the other partner could have been better, too. And sometimes, yeah. though, even in situations where let's say my partner did all the right things and mm-hmm. I'm feeling some feelings, you know, and maybe I'm feeling those feelings because maybe I'm not super emotionally intelligent yet. And I'm trying to work, get there. I'm trying to, you know, work through these things. I might ask my partner like, Hey, yeah, I'm not there. And yeah, I'm feeling some things. And yeah, I, you know, we, we talk about it together. Like I need you to help me. Like you're my partner. Can you lean a little, even though you don't have to, even though it's not your fault, can you lean a little to help me process and help me get there because I'm having a difficulty with this, you know, processing this kind of jealousy or whatever the specific thing is. Um, right. But yeah, each situation is so different. Right. And like in a situation like that, a lot of times what will happen in my practice is the person saying that the response of the person listening when they're new to therapy mm-hmm. will be to catastrophize. Mm. You know, the, the the response back will be like, see, you can't even do this. You, you're you not really non-monogamous. I don't even know why we're trying. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, like they yeah. jump to a worst case scenario, you know, and there's different reasons to do that. Maybe because they're they're scared of having non-monogamy taken from them or they're scared that their partner is trying to control them. Or, you know, there's a lot of different reasons why someone might catastrophize. Mm-hmm. But if you can pull back. Um, or or they'll lawyer up. They'll bring in their paralegal and go, these are all the reasons that you are logically being crazy right now, you know, which makes mm. the other person not feel validated. Uh. It makes them feel like they're not empathized with. And that's all we want. We just want to be seen. Right. You know, we just want to be seen. And and so if if, if a person can pull down, back from that and and respond to their partner in a grounded, conscious, compassionate way rather than a reactive way that that lacks compassion they can easily move through a moment like that and then feel closer on the other side yeah yeah would you say because like as you're saying this i'm like logically well of course um but then i think about all the times this has really happened with real humans in real situations and it's like we always have those emotional knee-jerk reactions where somebody says something and it like bruises our ego or our feelings or triggers something where we suddenly can't see what's really going on from an, we just, we're feeling our feelings and we're feeling them strong and they are dictating how we're reacting. So like, how do we learn to be able to not see through our own bias, like bruised ego, hurt, feelings lens and build some resilience to be able to hear and and respond to what our partner is saying in a compassionate way and also deal with like oof that triggered something in me oof oof I'm feeling things right well I I think part of it is um I think step one is breaking down the initial way that two people communicate because a lot of times 
I, I will say almost 99% of the couples that come in to me, you know, because again, people come in regardless of whether they have a quad or a triad or a V formation at home, which are all, <laughs> we didn't even explain that, but that's all different forms of non-monogamy. They come in as a couple. So that's why you'll hear me use that language. 99% of couples will come in and they will lawyer up, meaning they, they will both have their little invisible paralegal at their side and they'll be trying to win. Because mm. you, you gotta be that. right. You gotta be the one who's right all the time, right? No, right. And, and <laughs> monogamous people, non-monogamous people, every yeah. every freaking couple. That's how they start. Ninety nine percent of them. And I have to break all of that down because that model has nothing to do with empathy, empathy and validation, and mm-hmm. it has nothing to do with grounding your partner. And so once I break that down, then I'm rebuilding uh, what I call my, uh, my communication model is called the epic communication model. Ooh, which, why is it um, epic? <laughs> I'm like, I will tell is you. It, is it made of thinking like in, in uh, like role playing video games? Like, is it like <gasps> solid gold shoulder pads that are, <laughs> no, they're not <laughs> epic. Like they're not legendary armor. No. <laughs> All right. So let me tell you why it's epic. Um, <laughs> and actually, it took me a while to be able to just say it as I did, because it, it's I don't know, it's it's it, it sounds so superhero-y. <laughs> but anyway, so this is what it stands for. There's the emotional component, the physical component, component, the intellectual component and the compassion in action component. OK. OK. So the emotional component is the empathizing. The mm-hmm. physical component is the grounding and tracking your body. The intellectual component is the validation. I intellectually understand where you're coming from. And the compassion and action is what comes last. That's when you step into an action plan of how can I make this better for you? But that is last. If you lead yeah. with that, again, the person will not feel empathized and validated. Now, going back to P in Epic, the physical, the physical part is happening before, during, and after. It is not the epic, the EPIC, it, it doesn't necessarily have any kind of order except the the last. The compassion and action, that goes last. Everything else mm-hmm. is more fluid, right? Okay. But you can kind of do it one, you know, it, it's it's your own style. Once you understand it, then you can kind of have a flow and decide what works best for you. Mm-hmm. You're breaking down the lowering up and the proving yourself right and instead you're shifting to this model so you're giving space for the person that's injured to talk that's step one okay people that are using the lawyering up method are always cutting each other off and it's like two people on crack playing tennis ball you Uh know playing tennis this is more stopping and letting the injured person talk at first and Hopefully speaking kind of in small sound bites, this definitely has a component that feels a little bit like the Imago dialogue, which which um, the Imago dialogue is empathizing, validating and mirroring back. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the person injured might say, you know, at our play party last night when you were ma- making out with Veronica and you broke my garden gnome that was the only gift that I have from my great grandmother that I dearly loved. 
and you didn't say you were sorry and then you went to work the next day and you didn't say a peep and now you're back home and you still haven't said anything about it. Mm. I am super heartbroken about that and I'm super angry at you. And so the person listening would first probably start off with, with empathizing. So, and they can mirror back, like say back what they heard as best as they can. Mm -hmm. So I'm hearing that you're really upset that I, that I broke the only gift that you have from your great grandmother that you dearly loved and that you're, you're feeling heartbroken and angry. Is there anything else? And you try and pull out as much emotional language as possible. Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm heartbroken. I'm angry. You know, and I'm disappointed in you. You're better than this. What the hell? Right? Right. And and the other person's like, okay, yes, I feel disappointed. And and I hear that you're disappointed. And at this point, maybe he notices that she is breathing shallow. Mm-hmm. Right. And and he stops and he's like, honey, I can see you're breathing shallow. How can I help? He doesn't assume how he can help her. Mm -hmm. And maybe she's not so mad that she's to that point of saying, don't freaking touch me. <laughs> <laughs> and she can say. Can you can you just can I talk to you in the spoon position on the bed? And he's like, sure. And they get in this. He, so, so he's the big spoon and he's. And she's like, and can you, can you rub my back or pet my head? Mm -hmm. You know, so now he's, he's doing that and she's talking and she goes back to talking and, um, she's like, yeah, so I'm, I'm just really hurt that you haven't said anything. And then maybe at this point he goes into validation. You know, I really, I, I, I understand why you're so upset Mm -hmm. That logically makes sense to me because I know how much you loved her. You know, so he's validating her upset, right? Mm -hmm. While he's helping ground her. And, and, sh and again, she mirrors back, you know, she, or she confirms if he got that right, you know, yeah, you got that right. And at the tail end, if, if he feel, if she feels that he has empathized with her, appropriately mm -hmm. that he sees her that he gets it then at that point they might go into compassion and action which is you know um how can i help fix this mm. well actually on yelp i saw there's a garden gnome fixer that's down the street can you <laughs> can you get it fixed you know and 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 he says sure i'll, I'll get it fixed now on the tail end he might say can i now tell you why i was such a jerk i'm not trying to write this off but you know i you know i i didn't want to wake you the night of the party during the day at work i found out that our business is getting you know that there's a corporate takeover and i had to like handle everything with my employees so i'm so sorry i was a jerk and i and and all that but there were some things going on with me and then and they might have a dialogue that switches but i mean that's i can talk more about this communication model in a later episode but this kind of gives you just like a little mm -hmm. uh tasting spoon of what it's what it's like and the grounding can also start at the very beginning before you ever get started mm. you know where if you know you're about to have a, a uncomfortable conversation and maybe you even have it planned for a certain time you can make sure that you ground yourself and you have learned how to ground your partner where maybe 
um, before you even get started talking, maybe you hold each other's hands or you give each other a hug or, or something like that. If you're not so upset that that doesn't work, if you're really upset, then that's a different conversation, uh-huh. right? But so there might be grounding techniques that you do even before it starts. And in the middle, at any point, you might uh, need to take a time out and there's a good way and a horrible way to take a time out. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be like, fuck you and storm out. It's it's more like, I, I love you, but I need to take a break to ground myself and I'll come back in the next 10 minutes or mm-hmm. an hour or whatever, you know, so your partner doesn't feel left or feel like you are abandoning the conversation or are fearful that you're breaking up with them. Right, right. Right. So with doing this, with, you know, empathizing, validating, grounding, and then conscious communication, you know, uh, conscious compassion, compassion in action at the tail end. This is a model for love. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's, you yeah. know, as I'm listening, I'm like, oh, that is my dream emotional conflict situation. However, yeah. I can see so many ways where at least in my own life, like I'd be going through the epic steps and then I would epically fuck it up. <laughs> I mean, it goes back to what Megan on Amory says. It's like freaking practice. Like this is, yeah, this is like going to the gym and building up a muscle, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it takes two people being committed to it because if you're doing it and your partner refuses to read a book, refuses right. to do anything. It's kind of like being in a canoe and you're paddling really hard on one side and they're not doing their job on the other side. So the canoe is just spinning. Mm-hmm. It's like you have to have a partner that's willing to also do the work. Yeah. Yeah. But I can see like through that work and, you know, maybe it's starting with the small things and screwing it up a couple times and keep going, you know, being committed until you get it. How this is like, oh, it is epic. Yeah, I mean, I've seen couples be able, I mean, the thing is, a lot of very bright people are drawn to Mm non-monogamy. And a lot, my clients tend to be super bright. um, And they uh, tend to have more emotional intelligence than the average bear. And so I've seen plenty of people be able to do this. And then they start to use it in other aspects of their life. They start to validate and empathize with the person bagging their groceries. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. It really is a recipe for love. I love it. I love it. And I thought of after, you know, we talked about it sounded like you were saying a superhero thing. I equated Epic with like World of Warcraft or Dungeons and Dragons because I'm that kind of dork. It's <laughs> it's the epic breastplate of polyamory. That's what it is. Okay. <laughs> and on that note, we have only just skimmed the surface, the tip of the consensually non-monogamous iceberg, and we have so much more to talk about. So those of you listening along on the edge of your seats, hit the subscribe button so you are sure not to miss our next installment where we go even deeper down the joyous rabbit hole of polyamory. Uh, And we'll see you then when we once again dare to open deeply thank you for listening find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at kate marie or at sunny megatron check back bi-weekly for new episodes and until next time remember your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply
Intro and outro voice by the Queen Goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Burrell.